Story Grove. Um, we're super excited for what God's doing. We're super excited about Easter Sunday. We got some new changes and stuff. We're kind of working out the kinks. We got some new lights. I don't know if you guys noticed that at all. And so we're kind of working through um, all the kinks that that brings, but some exciting things that are happening in the lives of people here at Prodigal. And we can't wait to celebrate Resurrection Sunday together next week. Um, you saw in that video uh, a lot of excuses to not hang out with one another. Uh, what is your go-to excuse? When someone invites you to something that you don't want to go to, what's your go-to excuse? Because it's, like, it's very hard to be honest. They go, hey, you want to go to this thing? So, like, you're not going to probably say, no, that doesn't sound like fun. I, I'd rather do something else. Right? You have an excuse of some sort. Parents, have you ever used this one? Oh, sorry, my, my kids are a little bit under the weather. Okay. If you're laughing, that's you. Okay? Uh, or I've got a work thing. That's always a good one. Um, I've got an appointment. Never clarify what kind of appointment it is. Just an appointment. Doesn't matter. Could be an appointment with your couch, but you're not lying with that one. Uh, we've been exploring the parables of Jesus, and this morning's parable is found in Luke chapter 14. Uh, I want to set the stage for us. Uh, kind of the context of what's going on before Jesus tells this parable. Uh, Jesus is invited to the house of a Pharisee who were the religious elite of the time. Uh, while on the way to the house uh, with the relig religious leaders, Jesus encounters someone with abnormal swelling. And so then Jesus, of course, heals him, which is great. He healed someone, except for that it was on a Saturday, which is the Sabbath. And so what's better, following the religious letter of the law and obeying the Sabbath or healing this person who has a great ailment? Well, Jesus made his choice, but he did not follow the religious propriety of the Pharisees. Uh, what Jesus does here is a good thing. What's more important? Jesus made his choice, but it didn't make the religious people happy at the time. Uh, his time with Pharisees not off to a good start. So after the showdown in the streets, on the way to the banquet, they arrive, and Jesus then gives some unsolicited advice uh, about taking the lowest seat at a table rather than the best seat. See, the Jewish banquet was set out in such a way that the table sat about six inches off of the ground, and it was in the shape of a giant U. Around the table were cushions on which three men could recline, and the host would sit at the top of the U. The most honored guest sat to his right, then the next most honored guest would sit to his left, and so on all the way down. Where you sat at the meal was a statement of your social standing. The closer you could get to the host, the more important you were. If you stepped too far out, of, out and got too close to the host, and he asked you to go take a couple seats down, you'd be humiliated. So in Luke 14, they arrive at this Pharisee's banquet, and Jesus immediately notices all of the Pharisees scrambling for the best seat in the house, okay? This is the equivalent of a bunch of junior high boys calling shotgun on the way to their car, right? Uh, you guys know shotgun. It's the front seat. It's the passenger seat of a car, and it's also the best seat. Nobody wants to be cramped in the back. You want shotgun. My high school friends and I would have this constant game of shotgun playing throughout our entire high school career. Actually, we're still playing this game today, okay? And the same rules that applied for us in high school uh, almost 20 years ago still apply now. If we get in the car, we're all sharing the same car, going out together, um, kind of getting the boys back together again. Shotgun rules still apply. The whole thing is shallow and selfish. 
And the Pharisees here are, are calling shotgun. We want the best seat in the house. So Jesus says, don't take the best seat, take the worst seat. And he, he rebukes them by saying, take the, the worst, not the best. So now Jesus is two for two. He hasn't even sat down at the banquet yet, and he's already insulted the religious leaders of his time twice. And finally, right before he even gets there, uh, he, be, he looks around and sees the religious elite that surround him, the high and mighties, the well-to-dos, the... the uh, those who were more well-off are gathered at this banquet. Then Jesus tells them that when you throw a party, don't throw it for uh, the, the, the wealthy, those who can pay you back. Throw it for the poor, the crippled, the lame, so that they can never pay you back. So three times, before Jesus even tells this parable, he insults the religiosity of the Pharisees, and it's not going well. Luke 14 Verse 16 says this, Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come now, everything's ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told the servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. This week in preparation to this morning's teaching, um, I got to read countless stories of people kind of almost by happenstance applying this passage of scripture literally. Uh, one was the story of a woman who was getting married. She planned this huge banquet, and it was going to be held at the Hyatt Hotel in her hometown, and it cost $13,000. Everything had been planned. Everything was paid for. Then the groom dumped her. When she tried to cancel and get her money back, they said, sorry, the food's already been purchased. You're out. She decided to go ahead for the party. Now, years before, she had had a very difficult time, and she found herself staying in a homeless shelter for a certain uh, amount of time, and she decided, I'm going to invite the down and outs in our city, and we're going to have this luxurious banquet on us. So she invited them. For dinner, they served boneless chicken in honor of the groom, which I thought was good. <laughs> thought it was good. Homeless people dancing the night away, eating wonderful, exquisite cuisine. It's a good picture of the church and the kingdom of God, right? A person using their own brokenness to bless others. In first century Israel, invitations would have been sent out prior to the occasion. Now we send out one invitation and it stands, really, but in weddings we send out a save the date, hey, just so you know, and then we send out the RSVP. In the ancient world, they would send out two invitations. The first one would be weeks and months in advance. So everyone would know the exact date. 
Then they would receive a second invitation on the day of the event, knowing that it was time to go. See, food in the ancient world took, you didn't know how long the goat was going to take to prepare. You didn't know. And so they would be ready. First thing in the morning, they'd be ready. They'd get their stuff on. They're ready for the banquet that's going to be happening at some point today. And then once the food is ready, a servant would come in and bring them into uh, the party. This this would be the result that most of the listeners would expect, that the servant goes out and says, all right, guys, it's time, and everybody goes. But as we know, Jesus loves a twist. So the servant goes out with the second invitation, and everyone has an excuse. Keep in mind that, that Jesus tells us that everybody had an excuse, but he only lists three different excuses that are given. So the first excuse we find in verse 18 is this. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. The first excuse is possessions. Possessions. No one would make this kind of investment, uh, this massive field, without first inspecting it. And if he wanted to, he could have waited another day to inspect the field. It was obvious to the listeners at the time that this guy was using an acquired possession as an excuse not to show up to the banquet. And it was uh, insulting. Verse 19, another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. The second excuse is work. Work. A man bought a donkey from an old farmer for a hundred bucks. Farmer agreed to deliver the donkey the next day. Come morning, the farmer drove up and said, I'm sorry, sir, but the donkey that you purchased for a hundred dollars is dead. He says, well, then just give me my money back. He says, I already spent it. And he goes, okay, well, then give me the donkey. And he goes, what are you going to do with a dead donkey? He goes, I'm going to sell it. And he goes, you can't sell a dead donkey. How are you going to do that? He says, well, I just won't tell people it's dead, and I'll sell raffle tickets. And so he did. He sold 500 tickets at $2 a piece, made a profit of $898. And then the farmer says, well, didn't one person complain? And he says, only the guy who won he goes, what'd you do? He goes, I gave him his $2 back. <laughs> In the first century, no one would have purchased 10 oxen without having worked them out first, making sure they were healthy enough to do the job. When a team of oxen was sold in the Middle East, prospective buyers would go out to a field and watch them perform, watch them pull uh, and plow. And then they, before the price was even agreed upon, before they even talk about price, I got to see what I'm working with. So this is just a, a, a flimsy excuse. It'd be the equivalent of buying five used cars, and then once you already paid for them, take them out for a test drive. It makes no sense. And again, the transparent nature of the excuse is unmistakable. And yet, as with the first one, the second is very polite. This cannot be said for the third one. Verse 20, still another said, I got married, so I can't come. The third excuse is religion. Some of you are thinking, religion? Does, isn't family a better way to title it? See, Deuteronomy 24, verse 5, tells us that a newly married man is exempt from military service for one year, but that didn't get him out of uh, social obligations. In fact, what this guy says is really rather a crude statement. Men didn't discuss their wives or daughters in social situations at the time. So if you were to ask someone, how's your wife or how's your daughter, it's the equivalent of making a pass at them. This is a much different time than today. 
Some, if you ask someone that in the ancient world, the likely reply would be, it's none of your business. Asking about someone's wife or daughter was the same as making a pass. The statement was meant to offend and infuriate the, the banquet holder. He's, he's quoting scripture to justify inaction. He's using religion as opposed to uh, being in real life and in relationship with people. This is the exact thing that Jesus is confronting throughout the Gospels. In the parable, everyone made excuses. What's yours? Possessions, work, religion, family. The three in our parable have some pretty lame excuses, right? A field, some oxen, a wife. Our excuses are no less lame. God, I'm too busy right now, I'm, I'm tired. God, I'm just in a weird place right now. So maybe ask me to do that thing next time. I got to take care of this or that. My junior high football coach, 1994, said this and I never forgot it. He said, excuses are like armpits. We all got them and they all stink. <laughs> it's true. Our excuses stink. Excuses are a way for us to instantly get what we want or get out of something, but not ultimately what we need. Excuses are a way for us to get what we want, but not ultimately what we need. What is your excuse? What is God calling you to? The end of the parable is where the real provocation is located. Verse 21, the servant came back and reported this to the master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets, in the alleys of town. Bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Go to Skid Row. Go to the toughest, darkest areas of our city and bring everybody you find. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master said, Go out to the roads, the country lanes, and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. God's heart is always for the undesirables. Always. The lonely, the suffering, the oppressed, those on the underside of society, the poor. God's heart is bent towards that, and so should us. Our hearts should also bend towards that. No longer is this invitation based on social standing. It's not based on equality with the host. It's based on one thing and one thing alone, the graciousness of the host. It's not about the, the quality of people that are invited. It's about the quality of God and his graciousness towards us. The abundance of his resources and his desire to fill up the house. He doesn't care what your social standing is, what your ability is how much you make, how moral you are. This is a free-for-all. Whoever wants to get in, gets in. It's the economy of God's grace. It's not based on merit. We talked about this last week. The invitation, once restricted, is now open to all. The invitation that was once restricted is now open to all. Many scholars point to this as being Israel and the Gentiles. God's chosen people, they were invited the invitation was restricted to the chosen people, the, 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 the people Israel, but they rejected their king and crucified the promised Messiah, which we will celebrate and remember this Friday. And then 
Jesus arose and the gospel began to be spread to the Gentiles and included the Gentiles, everyone who wasn't Jewish. The kingdom must transcend our nationalism and tribalism and reach beyond ourselves. The parable is about Israel, but it's not just about Israel. It's about you and me. It's about us. Often, with a parable like this about inviting, we'll jump to evangelism, right? We have Easter services next week. There's going to be like a lot of people. Somewhere between 600 and 1,000 people, and I don't know where in that 400 it, of the amount of people. I have no idea, okay? It's going to be a lot of people here. Um, and uh, with a parable like this, you might think the pastor should go, well, let's go out to the streets, invite everybody to come to our church. We've got the answers. And there might be some of that in this passage, but evangelism, as it's predominantly described, gets a bit dicey, right? I've told you before about my it's complicated relationship with evangelism. Um, the master says, go and compel them to come in so that the house may be full. Compelling people to come to church Reminds me of a story about a rabbit and a snake. The rabbit and the snake had a meeting in the forest. The rabbit said, we don't know how we look. Why don't we describe each other so that we know how each other looks? And so the snake said, good idea. You've got a pink nose, long ears, fluffy little tail. The rabbit liked that. He says, I'm a rabbit. I'm a rabbit. Snake said, okay, no, no, you describe me. He says, okay, well, you have a forked tongue, shifty eyes, diamonds all over you. And the snake said, oh, no, I'm a televangelist. Uh, <laughs> We gotta, there's a bad impression about evangelism, right? There's a bad uh, impression about a sales pitch to get people to come to church, right? But the passage says, go and compel them to come in. Is that what Jesus wants? You go up to someone you work with, hey, uh, you want to come to Prodigal Church's Easter services this Sunday? No, I'm good, thanks. Well... <laughs> Sorry, you don't have a choice in the matter. I must compel you. <laughs> the master needs a full house. It's not what the parable's saying. I, I think it's more about this. Have you ever been offered something that you really want, but you respectfully decline just so that the offer might be assist, insisted upon? Like, hey, John, John, you want some of these milk duds? No, man, I'm good. John, I insist. I want to share you, I want to share with you these chocolatey caramel deliciousness. Okay. And then I go to town on the milk duds. I declined, but I really want them, but I felt almost unworthy to receive them because it's such a sacrifice for them. I think that's more of what's going on in this parable. The unexpected guest might be starving, but he still senses the cultural pressure to refuse. The master knows that as a matter of courtesy, that they refuse. That's why he says you must compel them. They're going to say, no, 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 no. You don't want me. You don't know what I've been through. I'm not good enough. I smell bad. I'll eat the whole table. You don't want me to go. It's too good to be true. And so he says, do everything in your power to insist that they come. Really, the word compel here is like insistent hospitality. When a stranger outside the city was invited to a great banquet, 
he assumes that the host doesn't really mean it. It's a ploy. It's insincere. It's just a courtesy invite. So the servant convinces them, grabs them by the arm and says, no, you must come. And all along, the stranger's thinking, this is too good to be true. He can't mean it. I don't deserve it. I have no way of ever paying this person back. But it doesn't matter because he's told to compel them. He's told them to demonstrate demonstrate in, in how you invite, in how you live, that the invitation is sincere. And that's our call as well. Our lives should demonstrate that the invitation is sincere. If you invite people, but your life doesn't display the sincerity of God's good news, you radiate insincerity. You radiate the shifty tongue and the covered in diamonds. The servant must do everything he can to demonstrate that the invitation is real and genuine. I think we should invite people to Prodigal Church next week. But what do I mean by evangelism? Let me put it this way. I was often taught that in evangelism, I need to argue and have the right points. And if I just argue logically, they'll be intellectually convinced and come to the knowledge of Jesus. That's bad evangelism, okay? Evangelism, I, I always thought it was like this, this wall of bricks and I've got to believe all the right things in this wall and, and I got to argue and defend each one. So if someone grabs a brick and they start shaking it and starting questioning it and stuff, I'm like, ah, and then I read everything about that brick and I got to defend it. You defend a wall, but following Jesus is not like defending a wall. It's much more like this. I've got a clip to show you what it's like. This is my son, Dex, and I um, in our trampoline. trampoline, you invite people to experience what you experience. That's evangelism. And it propels you. It's an adventure. Now, I'm not encouraging you to invite people to believe everything that you believe. I'm encouraging you to invite people to experience the joy and abundant life that we find in following Jesus. That's evangelism. Believing certain things in arguing about them is not transformative. Being propelled in our experience with God and one another into the world, that's life-giving, that's transformative, that's evangelism. There is like a Pentecostal vibe this morning in today's church service that we normally don't have, but I receive it, okay? I'm inviting you to do what my four-year-old son does. I'm inviting you to join and invite others to experience the abundant life we have in following Jesus. And it's an invitation to, to journey. It's an invitation to laughter. It's an invitation to life. So go. Go to the street corners. Go to the countryside. We're going to open up our doors to the surrounding community 
in Jesus' name and be the most loving and accepting place on the planet and pointing people to the living God, the promised Messiah who was dead but is alive again. That's what we're going to do next week. I want to invite Steve and the worship band to come up and I'll close with this. Um, February 2001, Adam Bertel, 20-year-old student at the University of Washington, put his soul up for auction on eBay. This is how the ad read. Hardly used. I make no warranties as to the condition of my soul. As of now, it is in near mint condition with only a few minor scratches. Due to difficulties involved with removing my soul, he wasn't dead yet, the winning bidder will either have to settle for a night of yummy Thai food and cool indie flicks or wait until my natural death. The bidding started at a nickel. Then his ex-girlfriend um, jumped it up to $6.66. 666, <laughs> the mark of the beast. In the final hour, the price rose to $56 and then to $400. A, a woman in Des Moines, Iowa, bet $400, bid it, and won his soul. And when I first saw this, I was like, man, how sad that dude put his soul up for auction. Like, that's sad. Then I thought, how sad that this girl in Podunk, Cornfield, Iowa, is bidding $400 for something that she can't own. I mean... You don't have to be lonely at FarmersOnly.com. <laughs> okay. No. No. What I really mean is this. You don't have to be lonely at ProdigalChurchFresno.com. What if, at the very least, the church is a place where you're not alone? You're, you're out in this life, and it's hard, and you try and impress and you try and go and, and live by the world system of merit only to fall short and we have these insecurities, we have these issues, and we have these struggles and we have these addictions and we have these shortcomings and then we just try and mask it all forever the world to see. What if the church is the only place at the very least, it's so much more, but at the very least it can be a place where people who are lonely, people who are crippled, people who are poor, people who, un who don't deserve stuff can come and be accepted and be loved and be transformed by the love of Jesus. The banquet invitation is to come as you are, but it's certainly not a stay as you are. God, I pray in Jesus' name that, we be a, that we're a place for the lonely, for the depressed, for those without, for those that can never pay us back. God, I pray in Jesus' name that this Sunday, as we celebrate the resurrection, the resurrection of the living King, we celebrate that you overcame sin and death, that you sacrificed for those that are undeserving and that we should go and do likewise. God, we thank you that you did not die on the cross because you were mad at us. You died on the cross because you were madly in love with us. And God, I pray that we tell that story, that we live that story in our marriages, that we live that story in our workplaces, with our kids. And so God, help us to be a people who go out, not to the religious elite, but God, to a world that so desperately needs you. So God, we lay before you our Easter services. We lay before you this week. We give you our families, our friends, 
We need you and love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we declare the goodness of our great God together?